you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. love-hate relationship with writing. Um, I was raised the child of an English teacher mother who demanded uh, precision and clarity in your writing, Uh, and yet I was also this kid who just found uh, new adventures with the boxcar children, uh, who who imagined himself uh, getting the raccoon's arms out and where the red fern grows. I I felt the pain of the little boy when Old Yeller was put down. I I found myself in books, and I've landed in a, in a vocation that requires a lot of writing. Um, this week I have uh, preparation for Sunday school. Uh, I've got a sermon. I've got a uh, discipleship intensive class that meets uh, on Mondays. We've got revelation that meets on Thursdays. And uh, for all but one Friday since I've been here, you've gotten a Friday email. There's uh, these moments throughout the week where I, I get to write. I'd love to write more. I, I find... Um, I find great joy in it, and yet at times it feels greatly frustrating. Uh, the words I want uh, aren't coming out, or the, it's not just landing the way I think it would. Uh, the desires of what is here are having trouble coming out on paper. Uh, I am a published author. Uh, if you want to Google Chad Foster, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John Greek Reader, you'll find a, a fantastic book that has sold like nine copies. Um, <laughs> Not many people want this guide to reading the Greek text of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, it, it's, a, it's a niche market, but um, I, I do have that on my CV that I'm a published author. Um, I also wrote the entry for Menorah in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So if you go read that, uh, you will find all the joy that could overflow about the Menorah in the temple. Um, I have this, this urge to write more broadly... And yet I find that I'm, uh, I'm regularly hitting roadblocks with it. I've, I've got these visions for other books I want to write. I want to write a book about what it means to imitate God. Um, what, what does it mean for us to, to follow these imperatives in the New Testament, to imitate God? And, and so I've, I've studied it with one of our Sunday school classes, and I, I think it means that we don't imitate God's roles. We don't imitate God's relationships. We don't uh, imitate uh, the very nature of God, we imitate God's characteristics. And I think this verse that we hear all the time in Scripture, uh, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, would make a fascinating book to, to read about what would it be to embody those. And yet every time I start writing, it sounds like gibberish. There's a book out there that I, I want to write uh, on truth as a cardinal virtue a thing that will give life to the church. And, and maybe one of the, the gifts that we could give the world is what does it mean to actually tell truth? And yet every time I try to write it, I, I feel this roadblock. I, I don't know how to move from a writer uh, within a context to a writer uh, more broadly. I, I can't get this thing out of my head for a, a general population. I feel a little bit better because one of my heroes of theological writing, Fleming Rutledge, didn't publish her first book till she was 65. So... Uh, there is hope out there for those. But what flows from me is the writing within our context. Um, 
coming up with what we're going to talk about. Most Sundays is easy. Some Sundays it's just like, whew, I hope they'll forgive me for that one, but, but here it is. But most Sundays I feel like I know where this is going to go. Um, at uh, Discipleship Intensive, I find great joy in developing something out of the book and finding this way for us to, to navigate the waters of biblical revelation. Um, and Friday emails, most of the time, uh, feel easy to write. You can tell the weeks that it's a struggle, right? Uh, often there's a big quote right in the middle, so it's like two sentences, a big quote, and two more sentences. Um, but some of my greatest pastoral moments uh, for me have been these Friday emails because they've helped me uh, flesh out what I'm feeling and thinking and hearing from you. The Sunday that we decided we were going to not meet in person for COVID uh, felt like I was writing uh, from my heart to your heart. Uh, the Sunday after the George Floyd, George Floyd stuff felt like I was writing from my heart to your heart. Um, some weeks it's not a big event of the world, but I feel like ah, God has put something in me uh, and, and I want to give it to you. I, I can write in the context. I can uh, write my father's obituary and find great uh, capacity for writing in that. If I try to be my friend David Arnold, it just doesn't work. He's a young adult author and his best friends are all young adult authors and they all write these incredible books and I would commend them to you. I, I can't be Georgia Stamper who can just write these uh, flowing, beautiful essays that bring forth uh, the wisdom of Owen County and her life for the world. Um, but I can write for us. I can uh, hear what's happening in your lives and find words, I think. Sometimes they don't land. I know some of you are like, oh, that Friday email, I'm just ready that thing just kind of go away. Um, I, know, I, I know sometimes uh, the, the text that you're waiting for is not the text you get. Sometimes the card is not what you expect, but I, I can write for us. I don't know if I could write sermons if I was just the teaching pastor. You know, uh, at some of our bigger churches in the world, there's this pastor who all they do is write sermons. They literally get just a full-time job to sit over here, write sermons, and work with staff. Um, they don't do congregational care. They don't meet people out in the, uh, in the pews before worship. They're back in the green room waiting for the, uh, the music to, to kind of intro them. I feel like most of my writing is born out of our relationships. And I've, I've recently come to really understand that's a lot of the writing of the New Testament. These epistles, these letters that come after the Gospels and Acts are a pastor writing to their church. Uh, we, we think of the New Testament letters as uh, canon for us to understand theology, right? This, this is a book that has uh, been uh, held together throughout time and been uh, authorized by the church as the, the source of our theology and life. And they absolutely are. First, they're letters from a pastor to their congregation. Paul, John, Peter. I think she wrote Hebrews, but that's just a debate that's up for it. I think she did. I totally think she did. Uh, these, these pastors are writing to their churches. And so before they were thinking, I need to write a systematic theology of X, Y, Z, they're saying, man, that church over in Corinth, they're being awfully greedy right now. And I need to talk to them about what their greed is going to do to them. This church over here in Rome, man, I need to talk to them. This, this church is struggling because the, the Christians, the, the Gentile Christians have been gone, but the Jewish Christians have stayed here under, under uh, the emperor. And now they're thinking they're better, but, but these powerful Gentile Christians are coming in, and, and I need to write and deal with them. This circular letter that we call Ephesians to the church in Asia Minor is this invitation to, to kind of go back to their first love. Hey, church, 
I know other people are telling you what it means to be the church, but, but here is these things that you need to have in your heart. These are written to churches, and then we have uh, later in the New Testament these uh, little short letters that we call the pastoral, or the, yeah, the pastoral epistles, uh, written to people. Timothy is written to Timothy. Uh, John writes uh, to the elder woman. Peter writes to a church that has been undergoing persecution and, and to some very particular... We'll get, we'll get off track with Peter in that. Uh, Jude and these, these letters uh, are written to people and to churches. And they're tiny. The, the church at Rome is, is probably our biggest church, and it's no bigger than Andover. Most of them are far smaller than us, and Paul has written to meet them in a moment. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul doing in these moments, particularly? What, what is he trying to say to the church, and what is he not doing? Paul is writing a letter to his beloved. He is not writing an article for Christianity Today. He is writing a letter to people that he, uh, he has a heart connection with, and in theory should offer him some grace. He's writing letters to people that he loves and desires to see uh, be the church in the way he's understood God to reveal the church. For the next uh, number of months, until we get to Christmas, we're going to be in these letters. We're going to be living the words of uh, one pastor to their congregations, or one pastor to a person, and we're going to kind of step in and say, what does this real personal letter say, and then what does it maybe mean for us? I'll confess, the Gospels are much easier to preach. We just get a nice narrative story usually, and we can kind of tie it together and say, oh, who are we in this story? What do we go and do with it? Letters require us to, to uh, wade through rhetoric. Letters require us to, to see ourselves uh, uh, or to hear the church uh, hearing these letters and then cross this interpretive river. So what does it mean for us? Letters require us to, to enter into an ancient Gre uh, Greco-Roman writing strategy that we don't use. They invite us to, um, to contemplate what an imperfect pastor was saying to their church. No one who wrote anything in the New Testament thought this will be the final word and those Christians 2,000 years from now will know exactly about this thing because of this one letter. And so we have this work of interpretation. And uh, the epistles are in our lectionaries year-round, every year. We've just finished up this series on the Catechism, and we're jumping right into the letters, we're jumping right into the epistles, and which one do you think came first? Of course you know you heard from Dave, uh, Darren, or Jeremiah. It's Philemon. Anybody Philemon your favorite epistle in the New Testament? Nobody. One time I asked if Mark was anybody's favorite gospel, and I was sure Nobody would raise their hand, and two people did. But I knew Philemon wouldn't be anybody's favorite letter of the New Testament, right? This little tiny letter is shorter than most of my Friday emails. I know I can get long-winded. Kathy regularly, Kathy Edwards, uh, makes sure to keep up on our emails and tell us when we're getting a little out of whack. This is shorter than a Friday email, and the church has said we need to keep this. That is useful for teaching and living. It's, it's uh, got a word that will endure past uh, this particular church. I would have just assumed about any other letter be the one that we start with this week. Philemon is the one that church, that pastors and theologians have always been like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff we've got to unpack here, and it makes us greatly uncomfortable. Philemon, uh, written from Paul, who was a prisoner for the cause of Jesus Christ, and our brother Timothy. Paul and Timothy are in prison in Rome, uh, writing letters to churches that are scattered out. 
Paul can't go visit them. He's locked up uh, and wants to kind of deal with their problems remotely, right? Today, we would probably send an email or a Slack or a, a FaceTime, a Marco Polo, a WhatsApp. We would, we would get a message over there uh, about what's going on. To Philemon, our dearly loved co-worker, uh, our sister Afia, our Archipus, our fellow soldier in the church that meets in your home. So he's writing to Philemon and the probably eight people who worship in his house church. May the grace and peace of God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, be with you. Standard epistle introduction. This is normal letter writing. And Paul is going to now set up with a, a kind of flair and love how wonderful Philemon is. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers because I've heard of your love and faithfulness, which you have both for the Lord Jesus Christ and for all God's people. I pray that your partnership in the faith might become effective by an understanding of all that is good among us in Christ. I have great joy and encouragement because of your love, since the hearts of God's people are refreshed by your actions, my brother. Paul is laying it on thick here, isn't he? Your love is just a shining light of God's love. You are incredible, Philemon. I can't believe how wonderful you are. I give thanks that the church gets to bask in the glory of your love for Christ. And, and your love for Christ reflects Christ's love for us. Thank you, Philemon. Paul does this in every letter. Uh, if, you, if you watch, there's an introduction and there's going to be some buttering up. I don't think I butter y'all up, but, but Paul clearly does, right? Therefore, if you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Uh, Paul makes a pivot. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to command you to do the right thing, I would rather appeal to you through love. Hey, I'm your pastor. I can tell you what to do morally, but I'm not going to do it. This is what Paul is saying right here, right? You're wonderful. You've got this, this light of Christ shining. So I'm just going to trust that you can make the good and moral decision here. I'm not going to make you do it. I'd rather you appeal to you through love. I, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, appeal to you from my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith during my time in prison. He was useless to you before, but now he is useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, which is like sending you my own heart. Uh, Onesimus is, uh, is Philemon's servant. Uh, it's translated slave in a lot of passages. It's not chattel slavery like we think about in America, but it's absolutely servitude. It is absolutely a debt owed, and it's absolutely a uh, class dynamic at play. Servants in uh, broader Greco-Roman empire were a different tier, and they were property, and uh, Onesimus has fled. He's run away from Philemon and come and found Paul. He came and found the pastor. Paul's in prison. He's, he's got to know Onesimus. He's gotten to know his heart. And he is uh, very aware that in this time, that, that him being a runaway slave is terrible for him. Um, this is as bad as running away from slavery in America. This is a problem. Philemon would be justified in society by being mad and punishing him violently. This is the cultural context Paul is writing to. I'm sending him back to you. 
which is like sending, him, sending you my own heart. I considered keeping him here with me so that he might serve me in your place during our time in prison because of the gospel. I wanted to keep him here because I love him and I don't want to send him back to you. However, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your act of kindness would occur willingly and not under pressure. I'm your pastor. I could have set your slave free and kept them right here with me and, and we'd have grown in this discipleship relationship and, um, and, and I could have done that. But I'm not going to do that because I want you to willingly set him free. I want this to be willingly and not under pressure. Uh, may this be the reason that Onesimus was separated for you a while so that he might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, that is a dearly loved brother. This is not uh, the reality of Greco-Roman uh, class dynamics. Your servant does not become your dearly loved brother, and Paul is saying, hey, I'm sending him back to you that through your loving kindness you might set him free and make him as a dearly loved brother. For you see, he's a dearly loved brother to me. How much more can he become a brother to you personally and spiritually in the Lord? So if you really consider me a partner, uh, welcoming, uh, welcome Onesimus as if, he were, as if you were welcoming me. Don't just begrudgingly receive Onesimus back in your household. Uh, receive him as if your, your beloved pastor is coming back from prison to come and be with you. If he has harmed you in any way or owes you any money, charge it to my account. I, Paul, will pay you back. I'm writing this with my own hand. Of course I won't mention that you owe me your life. I just love how he throws that in there, right? Hey, if, if, if he has wronged you financially, I will deal with that. But let's not forget, something happened that is not in this letter, and you owe me your life. And I love this. Is this like literally like Paul saved him from a lion? Uh, or like the gladiators? Or, or is this like a metaphorical, you owe me the life that you now have in Christ? And, and the authors don't tell us, so we can write that on the top right corner of our page and talk about it in the parking lot later. But we have no interpretive answer to what exactly this means, other than Paul saying, this is serious. I'll pay whatever, but, but remember this relationship we have. Yes, brother, I want this favor from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I'm writing to you confident that your obedience and knowing that you will do more than I ask. He goes on to say, oh, and get a room ready for me. I hope I'm busting out of the jail pretty soon, and I'd love to come visit you. So get the room ready. Hey, we uh, send my love to all the people in the house church. The end. This is Paul's letter to Philemon, this attempt to, to bring the full weight of the gospel uh, to this very moment and to say, Christ loved me, Christ loved you, and Christ loves Onesimus. Just as uh, Christ set us free from the debts we owe and removed us from slavery, in that same loving kindness, set him free. I'm not going to make you do it. I'm not going to try to tell you that you have to do it. I'm going to appeal to your good character to set him free. Pastors hate this letter and preaching on it because it doesn't go far enough, right? We, we, we live in a George Floyd world where we know there are still systemic problems, right? And, and this letter does not go anywhere beyond free this one slave. 
And there's a lot of folks who are like, why didn't Paul say, let's, let's, let's break down the institutions that cause this. Let's set all of them free. Let's rally the churches and go and do this. And those are all valid things to want and desire. But Paul is writing to one person in this one pastoral moment. And so if we can step back from this being a systematic theology of slavery and see that this is pastor writing to one who he loves. He's asking in this one particular spot of the world to buck up against the systems of oppression and to set someone free. I think we can read the text a little differently and we can give it the full weight and beauty of a pastor saying, I believe that God has changed you enough that you can change this one person's life. I believe that God has shown his light and life into your heart so much that you will willingly set him free. That's a like... It's a lofty pastoral letter, right? We, we, I, I know sermons hit different each week. I know that sometimes you miss what I've said, and sometimes there are things that I'm like, we just talked about that. Like, God doesn't act that way. And so this pastor is trusting the heart of their parishioner, trusting the transformation that God has done in them, trusting that the Spirit is working in them in ways that they will go in countercultural directions and set this person free. We have to make an interpretive jump from this passage to what it means for us, right? These, these texts, we, we can receive in their moment, uh, and we can hear them, and we can exegetically unpack them, but then we have to say, so what? Why did the church think that this little, tiny, Friday email of a letter needed to be back here where if you're not careful, you flip past it, because Titus is on one side and Hebrews is on the other, right? It's like a page flip mistake, and you miss it, and the church said this needs to be here. I want to see our world changed. Um, there's a lot in our world that I would love to see uh, redeemed and fixed. There are systemic struggles abounding for every class of marginalized people, and I think we need to tackle those. And there are some of you in this room who are in positions where you can actually affect change at bigger levels. Um, but even more, we're a group of people who have experienced God's love and have moments in our lives every day where we can be... Uh, a shining light of Christ's love and do the thing that we know is right even when the world says it's not. There are moments in each of our lives every day where we can, we can go, maybe the world allows this, but this is not okay. There are moments where we can say that this is not good and I can't fix this, but I can do this. And my heart is that you will uh, draw upon the love of Christ, the, the work of the Spirit in your heart and all the grace that has been poured out before you, this, this life in Christ and that you would then be bold enough to do those things in those very moments. It's my prayer for me every day. It's my prayer for Josiah. He regularly uh, moves me towards more local action. I am, an, I am much better at theory. Here's the things that need to happen on a big level. But Josiah is the one who's going, well, what about him when he sees somebody on the corner of the street? He's the one going, we have an extra bedroom. Why is somebody not living there? He's going, that person is hungry, and we got extra food. And he regularly calls me back to the local. Um, friends, there are people in your families who are hurting. There are friends who are in situations that need help. There are things that you don't have to look and go too far to find where you, through Christ, can make a difference. 
where you can do the thing that is countercultural, that is uh, against the society norms, and you can offer someone freedom in Christ. My prayer is that you will go do it, and my prayer is that I will go do it. We as a church will live uh, out of the light of Christ shining in us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we can love because you first loved us. We can, uh, we can seek freedom for others because you have offered us freedom. We can draw upon uh, the gifts you have given us to be gifts for the world. Lord, would you stir our hearts today to find, uh, to show us where our Onesimus is. Where's the thing that we've held on to uh, for just too long? The thing that uh, we could go and uh, change somebody's life. Reveal to us what it means to be be your people and to share your heart. Lord, meet us in this table and fill us with your grace that we might go forth uh, in uh, knowledge and love of you to point the world to your face, to show your love and to announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.